Aqualads and Aqualasses, welcome back to the Aqua Cave for part two of Top Man, 1989 in film. Gosh almighty, it feels like it's been forever, but we are finally back to talk about the second half of 1989. Now, just in case you missed out on part one, let me just briefly reiterate what it is that we're doing here. Um... 1989 in cinema has been a year I've spoken about before on different podcasts. The summer is a summer that's absolutely bonkers, balls to the wall, with all sorts of franchises, sequels, uh, films that are, you know, targeted at different audiences just across the gamut. It's such an interesting look back at, uh, you know, sort of what film release and what, you know, things sort of felt like back in 1989. So what we did was we started in January and went all the way through July in part one. Now... We're going to track the back half, well, a little bit less than half, but we're going to track the back half of the year and just go through this thing in chronological order. So it's still list-based entertainment here on Top Man. But I definitely think if you missed out on part one, let me give you just a little bit of a tease. Not only do we hit the big stuff, okay? Obviously, we talked about the movie of the decade. All right, everybody knows the big movie that came out in June of 89 with Michael Keaton and Jack Nicholson. We didn't talk about it too long, I promise. But we also touched upon other releases of 1989. Not all these things are blockbusters. A lot of these movies are movies that probably came to you on cable or via rental of VHS. The lost art of VHS rental. And it wasn't art, ladies and gentlemen. It wasn't art. Um, we talked about movies like Troop Beverly Hills, for example, in probably way more detail than you wanted, but just in case, that's just sort of an example. It didn't have to be a big budget blockbuster affair to get some discussion points. So, and speaking of which, that's a great pivot to where we start in August. It's August 2nd, 1989. And I'll tell you what, folks, you may not believe it. I love this movie. I still kind of do. Now, well, I shouldn't. I haven't seen this movie in a very long time, but this was a big movie in the Johnny C household. This is a movie even mom and dad would sit down and take a look at. And with a cast like this, who could blame them? And it's August, interestingly enough. You know, some of the big films, like the previous week, we had Friday the 13th Part 8 come out, okay, which is obviously, this is counter-programming to that to a certain extent. It's Parenthood, starring Steve Martin, Diane Weiss, Mary Steenburgen, J- Jason Robards, Rick Moranis, Tom Hulse, Keanu is in here, Harley Jane Kozak is in here, uh, fucking Joaquin Phoenix is in here as the little kid that carries around the bag of porno. Gary, as Diane Weiss says. Now look, you know I- I've seen this movie quite a bit. It is a portrait of a family in the American suburbs just trying to figure it out and it's like the parents that have uh middle-aged kids and their kids and maybe their kids start having kids and it's just i mean it's a slice of life now i don't know if anybody's life is really like this these people most of them aren't exactly hurting for cash and yeah they're all white uh so it's you know i'm not trying to say it's a slice of actual middle american life (sighs) It's a slice of middle American life in 1989 that we were comfortable putting on the big... I'm not saying this is a good thing, all right? It's just... I realize that the gross generalization that is me saying it's a slice of life. I don't want that to get lost, okay? 
That being said, I've spent my entire life trying to not grow up and be Tom Hulse from this movie. I hope I'm not, but at the same time, it's a movie that's stuck with me for a very long time. You know, I would check it out, especially if you're 40, 45, whatever. Like, it's it's number one. It's interesting to see a lot of these uh, actors doing this because they're a lot younger than they are now. But I don't know it. It's decent enough. It's funny enough. There are a couple of gags that uh, obviously couldn't wouldn't happen here in 2022. Um, you know, like Diane Weist picks up the wrong photos from the uh, lab, the photo lab, and you know sees her daughter in Keanu Reeves's intimate photographs. I mean, but that's. I mean, there are other ways that that could happen now. So these things are still relative across the time gap and across generations. You know, it's just, check it out. Maybe it's good, maybe you like it, maybe you don't, but I think it's worth it. Now, it's only our second film, and it's already confession time, okay? Because on August 9th, James Cameron released The Abyss. Uh, Famously, this movie sets the groundwork for the special effects that will become the T-1000 and Terminator 2. The liquid metal. He's a, he's living metal. He's liquid metal. A living endoskeleton encased in liquid metal. I'm the T-800. My name is Arnold. He can make knives and stabbing weapons. The T-1000 can. I've never seen The Abyss. Punch me. I've never seen Roadhouse either. We talked about this in part one. I've never seen it. It's, I think, the only James Cameron movie that isn't Piranha or whatever that he directed as like a student film that I haven't seen. I think, yeah, because I've seen Avatar. Obviously, I've seen Titanic. I've been talking about Titanic a lot lately. That Titanic podcast is coming. Don't you worry. But I don't know what I have to say about it. Two days later, August 11th, a movie we talked about on Top Man this month, A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 5, The Dream Child. Now, this is a fun one. It's another sequel. It's just a couple of weeks after Jason took Manhattan. Man, horror fans are really fucking on paper, getting a hell of a summer. Unfortunately, if you listen to the Top Man episodes that cover Nightmare on Elm Street and Friday the 13th, you know neither one of these films ranked very high, but I did have A Nightmare 5, The Dream Child, penciled in at last place, and it didn't get last place after a rewatch. So, maybe you're due for a rewatch yourself, but still, it can't be denied that, you know, both horror franchises had a big release this year, and both of them, eh, eh, But still, it just adds to the paper cachet of 1989 in cinema, especially the summer. Now, the next week, two very different films. All right? One of them is probably a little bit more relevant than the other. So I'll start with that one first. It's August 16th, and I saw this film in theaters, and I remember actively just not wanting to be there. It's the John Candy star Uncle Buck. Now, look. Before you get angry, I should probably just put this out there. I'm not much of an Uncle Buck fan, okay? And I, sh- I mean, you know why? You know I'm not a huge Uncle Buck fan? The movie's kind of gross. Now, it's not gross in a way that's, like, gross. I just, I don't know, something about this movie didn't really click with me as a kid. And so I was never apt to rent it or watch it when it was on Showtime or anything like that. I just, I don't know. Like, I don't, I don't like this movie. Shoot me. No, don't shoot me. Don't do that. But at the same time, like, I'm just not a fan of this film. But I know it's another one of those sort of staple films. Like, 
For me, I had uh, the Burbs. All right, maybe your family or you had Uncle Buck, and that's totally cool. I respect where you're coming from, but I think that that is another reason that goes to show that '89 is just bonkers strong when it comes to the the titles it's releasing, because I know Uncle Buck is a cult favorite, and I understand where you're coming from. John Candy was a great actor. You know, and this is a John Hughes joint. This is the flick that gave us uh, Macaulay Culkin's interrogation of Uncle Buck's girlfriend or lady friend. And, uh, you know, it gave the idea for Home Alone. I hope I'm not speaking out of school on that. I feel like I've read it a hundred different times. That's where the idea came from. Macaulay Culkin interrogating an adult that was coming to his house to visit. And then it went from there. So there's definitely historical importance with Uncle Buck. And like I said, probably a cult film for a lot of people, some families maybe totally get it i just i don't know something about uncle buck never quite sat right with me i didn't i don't know i don't really like the supporting cast much maybe i should rewatch it instead of just going off of stale memories from like 1992 or the last time i watched it but it just didn't work for me at the time and i really i've never been like oh i have to rewatch this maybe i will maybe i won't we'll see the next film from august 16th carries a lot of name cachet with me only and you're free, feel free to make fun of me for even mentioning the film. But there's something about this movie that always I wanted to know more. I wanted to understand more. It's another sequel, believe it or not. Eddie in the Cruisers 2, Eddie Lives. Now, here's the thing. When I was a kid, it drove me absolutely bonkers when I would see a commercial for Eddie in the Cruisers 2, Eddie Lives. Do you want to know why it drove me crazy, Aqualads and Aqualasses? Because I had no idea there was an Eddie in the Cruisers 1. It drove me insane that there could be a sequel film that I wasn't aware of what the original was. And it, to this day, still makes me think of that every time I see the name of the movie. Now, it doesn't happen a lot. And I even remember being in the video stores when Eddie of the Cruisers 2 came out on VHS... Because I was like, okay, it's an alphabetical order. Eddie and the Cruisers should be right next to it. But no, Eddie and the Cruisers wasn't right next to it. I felt like this was bullshit. I felt like this movie was just fucking messing with me. Like, okay, there really is no Eddie and the Cruisers. This is just some sort of nonsense film title. But there is Eddie and the Cruisers. I think Eddie dies at the end, but Eddie lives in the sequel? I don't know. Has there ever been a podcast that's spoken this long about Eddie and the Cruisers 2, Eddie Lives? Maybe it's some sort of genius film that I just don't know anything about. But it, it literally, the only reason it's even getting mentioned is because even as a youth, it pissed me off that I didn't know that there was a movie called Eddie and the Cruisers that was getting a sequel. And I'm only six or seven here. Uh, oh, well. Tis the life of a Johnny C. The next weekend, our final film from the summer of 89. It breaks my heart to go out on one that isn't much of a Johnny C personal favorite. But again, much like Uncle Buck, Parenthood, we talked about Turner and Hooch briefly because I don't give a fuck about Turner and Hooch. I could see the next film being a film that did it for you, did it for your household, etc., etc. I don't know that I've ever seen this movie all the way through, even though I was a fan of The Wonder Years and Bobby's World. That should probably give it away. It's Little Monsters where Howie Mandel is the monster that lives under Fred Savage's bed. I mean, I've tried to watch it before. I've seen bits and pieces on HBO as a youngster or whatever, but I don't know. The movie just doesn't really do anything for me personally, and so I don't want to shortchange it if it's yours. I 
I don't really have much to add to it except to give it sort of the Uncle Buck treatment. Like, I totally get that it maintains a bit of pop cultural relevance, and so it's absolutely worthy about being spoken of to show the diversity of 89 titles, but also to show that 89 had such a strong release calendar that uh, the movies live on to this very day. But at the same time, I don't have much to add to it from a personal perspective, and it breaks my heart, but it's absolutely true. Speaking of breaking your heart, you know, we talked earlier in part one about No Holds Barred. Coming out like, I don't know, Two weeks, No Holds Barred came out the week before Star Trek V, two weeks before Ghostbusters 2, three weeks before Batman and Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Absolutely the exact same market that you're fighting for. Absolutely terrible, terrible release date. Um, And it was two weeks after Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. So it was right smack dab in the middle of you, you got one chance, if you're lucky, you got one weekend to make an impact, and obviously they didn't. I've got no movies from September. Why not release in September, Vince? I mean, you're supposed to be some sort of branding genius. Uh, or were you just a cold hard bastard about this and you wanted to be a big summer blockbuster? Because you probably could have made at least... I don't, I'm not going to say you would have won the weekend, but maybe you would have. I think Hogan was enough to get the kidsters. Another problem was that PG-13 rating. Um, because I think people cared back in the day about shit like that. So, I don't know. But we're going to go all the way to October. And this will probably be the final Aquatober-related piece of information that I'll share with you. I'm so tired of scary movies, but here we go. October 12th, October 13th. Puppet Master and Halloween 5, The Revenge of Michael Myers. Are you kidding me? 1989 in cinema. Saw a new Friday the 13th. It saw a new A Nightmare on Elm Street. It saw a new Halloween film and the beginning of a new franchise in Puppet Master. Unbelievable year for horror fans. Now, pressing pause there, Halloween 5, one of the weaker Halloween entries, just like Halloween 8 and A Nightmare 5. You can see that we're getting to the sort of end of these sequels really standing out and meaning anything, but... You can't take away from the fact that they all came out in 1989. What a year. Um, Halloween 5, I think, was ranked in the bottom fourth or the bottom third, maybe, of my list. It certainly wasn't the worst. That's Halloween Resurrection. Um, But it doesn't really add a whole lot. Halloween 5 is sort of famously, like, misguided. And uh, it just kind of abandons what Halloween 4 sets up for it. But still, you can't deny that there's name cachet when you're talking about 89 in cinema and having a sequel in all these major franchises. So I think it's important. Puppet Master, a franchise I've never really gotten into much. It's sad to say that the Puppet Master film I've seen the most is actually Retro Puppet Master, which was a more modern-ish movie that was shoestring budget, and it stars one of the dudes from The Room. I've only seen it because I like the riff tracks of it, and the riff tracks is cooked into the... You can just buy it straight from them, so you don't have to like watch the movie and then listen to riff tracks separately. And I did do a Top Man episode on riff tracks. Retro Puppet Master didn't make that list, but uh, probably the only time we'll speak about Puppet Master in any way, shape, or form here in the Aqua Cave. But man, oh man. Now, there was some counter-programming this same weekend. October 13th also saw another film that I probably 
saw way too young in life because I didn't get half of the gags. But picture this. You see the trailer for this movie, and especially as a kid of six or seven, who doesn't want to see a movie about a talking baby? It's Look Who's Talking, featuring Kirstie Alley, John Travolta, and the voice of Bruce Willis. I mean, this movie reeks of kids wanting to see it and then watching it and not realizing, oh, maybe this wasn't exactly a kid's movie. It does have babies in it. I think this film famously opens with uh, sperm swimming to fertilize the egg. And it's pretty hilarious. I mean, it's it's well done. It's it's a decent enough film. I believe the same woman that directed this directed Clueless, Amy Heckling. Oh, gosh, don't hate me. I'm not trying to be disrespectful. The, the pronunciation of her last name is escaping me. So, And obviously, this movie had probably two sequels, too many. But at the same time, this may have been probably my first exposure to John Travolta as well. Um, I didn't realize how down on his luck John Travolta was, but this film is decent enough. Now I really, I'm curious. It's got a decent release release date um, because it's in October, so it's kind of independent. But it is going up against two horror franchises. This movie made almost three hundred million dollars at the box office. Wow, and it was made for seven point five million. Dollars. Amy Heckerling is the director. Holy shit. No wonder it made two sequels. Well, damn it. I'm not surprised. The film has a great had a great marketing campaign. Even I wanted to see it as a youngster, like I've mentioned. A decent enough movie. I don't know how well it ages. I haven't seen it in a very long time. Um, but George Siegel's in this thing, too, as the guy that uh, gets Kirstie Alley pregnant and then, like a douchebag, bails. I like his kid, Jason Siegel, quite a bit. I think he's hilarious. But, uh, you know, this movie is what it is. Um, I believe at the end is where we get, uh, gosh, um, what's his dog? Mikey is Bruce Willis. He gets Julie, his little sister. It's Joan. Okay, I was going to say, I don't think it's Roseanne Barr because that's the sequel. Joan Rivers is the voice of Julie the baby here. I wonder why we didn't get Joan. You know what? I like Joan Rivers more than I like Roseanne. How come we didn't get Joan Rivers in the sequel? Ah, Mikey. I was at WrestleMania 2. That's a real bad Joe Rivers impression, but I never promised to do one. I didn't plan on doing one, so whatever. Now, I've got one more movie in October to talk about, okay? And it's October 27th, 1989. And I've seen this movie, and let me explain. I saw this movie in theaters, and... I've never seen it since. Okay? I saw this movie one time. And that was at theaters. And, and and one kid from the neighborhood wanted to see it, I think, for his birthday. And, you know, I was always down for a birthday party. But, man, oh, man. It's The Bear. A movie about a bear. And, like, a bear. I don't fucking know what you want from me. I believe it's like a French film. And uh, I think it came out in the States after it was released over there. So I guess I might be cheating with its 1989 release time frame. Because I don't know when it was actually made. But, like, <sighs> it's not a documentary. It's not, I don't think it's a, there's, there is dialogue in the film, I think. But not a ton. I just, I'm blown away. This movie reeks of, it's my birthday in October. 
I want to have a birthday party and go see a movie with my friends, but my mommy won't let me see a movie that's not PG, and this is the only PG movie that's out at the time, which makes sense, because we got Puppet Master, Halloween 5, Look Who's Talking, it's PG-13, this reeks of I'm only allowed to see PG movies, why the fuck have I seen The Bear? It might be a great film, like, don't get me wrong, like, I'm not throwing shade at it as an adult, it could be a very interesting film that, like, has great uh, symbolism that I totally missed out on, but it just... It blows my mind. Like, I, you know, I want to do this in other years, and it'll probably blow you away titles that I saw in theaters multiple times when I was, like, able to drive. But this is a one and done, and it reeks of why have I seen this movie. I just don't know what else to say about it. It's just... Ugh, yeah, it looks like it was released in October 88 in France, and then October in the U.S. in 89. So, yeah, there you go. I don't know. It's just, uh, let's see what the critical reception is. 88% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, I'm just on Wikipedia. Go fuck yourself. <laughs> I'm kidding. That, that sounded really mean. But I don't know. So, yeah, it probably is a good movie. Wow, a small campaign was launched to get Bart the Bear nominated for Best Actor. Arguing the bear gave such a movie performance, he should be the first animal actor to receive consideration for an award. But yet, nobody let, uh, what the fuck is his name? Oh, God. Andy Serkis. Should never got nominated for playing mocap ones. Um, obviously, the Academy didn't let this bear get nominated. But now, now I want a documentary made about the hunt to, or the quest to get the bear nominated for best actor. Good lord, the fucking rabbit holes that we fall down here on top, man. Now, the very next point of conversation is one that I've been looking very forward to. One of the reasons I wanted to sort of cut this thing in a couple pieces, This that being the 1989 year, because I wanted to dive into this next weekend and then a couple of days after for around Thanksgiving time. So let's start. It's November 17th, 1989. So the Friday before Thanksgiving breaks for most, you know, schools, public schools, universities, I don't really know. And, you know, I'm not saying everybody ran to the movies, but, you know, people are available. There are four movies and there's such a story within these four films that are being told. Let's pair up the first two because there's some brand synergy here. All Dogs Go to Heaven. Animated film from the Don Bluth studio. Creepy fucking animated film, to be completely honest with you. I cannot believe this film got made. I'm not saying that about the quality of it, but holy shit. It's, uh, it's pretty intense for animated fare. Going up against the undisputed king, queen, whatever you want to call it, the uh, evidence number one, exhibit A, if you will, for the Disney animated renaissance, The Little Mermaid. Now, if you're not familiar with the Disney renaissance, I'm no expert. I don't want to overstep my bounds. There's lots of other uh, great content out there that would cover a topic that deep. But if I'm not mistaken, I know it starts with The Little Mermaid. Uh, and then I think it goes all the way to, to, in my head, it goes until, you know, we get into like Tarzan. But I know that officially it's controlled more by box office dominance and might end with the Lion King. I don't know if Hunchback and Pocahontas are a part of that. Um, but around that area, you know, where the the Disney films that are, that are a part of that renaissance were not only like amazing fare, but also uh, bringing in the money. And, of course, these other films brought in money, too. I love Hunchback. I think Mulan's great. Pocahontas is so-so. Um, 
No, Pocahontas is okay. You know, my daughter grew up loving Pocahontas unbelievably, so I I watched it quite a bit. I could actually recite it to you at some points. That's how crazy that is. But it, this is off topic. But the reason I wanted to, to point these two out first. It, now, granted, this is the Disney renaissance we're talking about. Oliver and company didn't set the world on fire. But imagine, if you will, that um, DreamWorks and Illumination released Super Mario Brothers on November 17th. And Disney Pixar releases Toy Story 5 on November 17th. I mean, all you're doing is splitting the market. Those things try to stay as far away from one another as possible. Um, And here we are with two films just saying, yeah, fuck it, we're going head-to-head because we service the same market, and it's a time when this market has extra time on their hands, and parents... Uh, you're trying to fill that extra time, so here we go. Maybe it's a response to the, the the business being aware that, you know, we have kids that are going to have nothing to do, and there's enough room in the space for two films of the same nature. I'm sure uh, theater exhibitors, you know, I, well, I was going to say I'm sure they loved it. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't. Maybe they'd wish, oh, why don't you come out before, come out the weekend after, because all you're doing is you're not bringing more people to the theater. They're just choosing which one to go to. Obviously, the idea is to bring more people into the theater that wouldn't be there before. But is anyone really picking All Dogs Go to Heaven over The Little Mermaid? Well, we'll talk about it, because we're going to actually go a little bit deeper here. So let me just keep going with this November 17th. The next film, Steel Magnolias. Now, I hey, I like Steel Magnolias as much as the next guy. It's fine. It's entertaining. It's There's some good performances there. It's your human drama, if you will. But it's a completely different market to service. It's the female market. Dare I say, maybe even skewing a little older. A fantastic piece of information here. Because if it's women that you're trying to market to, okay, women of a certain age... If it's older women, I get this. But if it's, uh, I don't know, 30-somethings, 40-somethings, and I'm, look, all of this shit is going off stereotypes because when you're trying to generalize who may or may uh, buy your product, some of that is sort of stereotypical type research. Uh, I'm no expert. It's just you know what I'm going with here uh, because I believe when it comes to film especially. Uh, in, in more so, it's more predictable in certain time frames and not have you, but are you... Are you trying to get moms to come to the theater? Because moms are bringing their kids to see the animated movies, aren't they? Or are they not? Are they coming? Are they making a second trip? It's interesting to me that you would target a film like that for the same weekend. Then, the fourth film coming out this very same weekend, Harlem Nights. I will admit, and that's Knights with an N, because Harlem Knights with a K sounds like, uh, I don't know, the new Batman and Batman teaming up, maybe for some sort of jaunty adventure in DC Comics. Um, But at the same time, a film led by two black men, two tremendously hilarious men, and it's such, it's, you know, hopefully, thank good, well... I would like to say that now that that's like, oh, well, that happens. Well, it does, actually. You know, you got like The Rock and Kevin Hart. Look, my point is this. It's a completely different market. Not only are these two guys comedy comedy legends, but I don't want to lose sight that, you know, that's kind of a historical thing that should be praised as well. Um, you know, you're servicing this market that's desperate for content. And 
Uh, when we talk about the box office, I think that's going to pay off. So this wildly diverse array, uh, array of films, you know, totally different from what we've been talking about. We're talking about a lot of franchises here. And yes, one could argue that Disney is a franchise. But remember, this is sort of the Disney's coming back into hold for dominance here. They're, they're sort of trying to get a hold back on the marketplace. So why don't we go ahead and just dive into the box office on this weekend because I find it absolutely fascinating. All right, we got to go to the top five. Number five this weekend is All Dogs Go to Heaven with $4.7 million. Okay, number four is Steel Magnolias with 5.4. So, interesting here. It looks like a sacrifice film was made. A film was sacrificed to the altar of moms and kids, and that sacrifice was All Dogs Go to Heaven. But listen to this. Number three is The Little Mermaid with just a little bit over $6 million. So here's the big question. Could The Little Mermaid have gotten $10.7 million? Or was there really an audience that decided that they were going to go see All Dogs Go to Heaven instead of The Little Mermaid? Because listen to this. This is staggering. All Dogs Go to Heaven opens in 1,500 theaters. Little Mermaid, 994. Which tells you people wanted to see The Little Mermaid. It was an appointment viewing. And, and that's rightfully so. I love The Little Mermaid. The Little Mermaid's a great film. Got so much play in the Johnny C. household. Oh my goodness. Unbelievable. The soundtrack was all over the place. I mean, it, it was a happening. It was like WrestleMania 1, okay? Little Mermaid's a happening. I'm excited to see the uh, the remake when it uh, eventually comes out on Disney+. Plus. <laughs> Number two was Look Who's Talking. Sticking around for its, let's see what week, it's in its sixth week. $8.5 million in its sixth week at number two. A movie in its sixth week would die for that these days. Are you kidding me? I just saw uh, Black Adam drop like 60% for its second weekend. It's making like $20 million this weekend. It would kill for an, a sixth week at $8.5 million. Unbelievable. But number one, Harlem Knights. Richard Pryor from Superman 3. Okay, he said so much more, but I love Superman 3. I got to tell so far. And Eddie Murphy teaming up. It's a, it's like an Avengers movie for comedies. And it's so interesting, too, that it's number one because it's rated R. You know what I'm saying? So it, it, it's so interesting to me that it took took out all the family-friendly fare and what have you. I think it's awesome. I, this actually kind of makes me want to see Harlem Nights. Obviously, box office doesn't dictate... Uh, whether or not a film is good or what have you, but I've gone too long with uh, you know seeing two comedy legends like that because you got to assume it's a pretty easy to watch comedy. I think it's a period piece though. I don't know if I like that, uh, but you know it is what it is. So I got to see Harlem Nights. I got to see Roadhouse, and I did see The Abyss. Even I, the person who's supposed to be hosting the show, is learning things as we go along. This thing. Now, the next wrinkle into this entire equation is that a few days later, on November 22nd, a movie that I was there opening weekend, fucking with bated breath, because I'd been watching and waiting for this sequel since I was a young... Well, I was young anyway, but since I was even younger. Back to the Future Part 2. Back to the Future! Great movie! You know, Back to the Future 2 was always... uh, I was always told... As a youth, ah, one and three are so good, but I don't know. I like two quite a bit. I love two because it, and what's sort of interesting to me about two, and this is based on no evidence, it's just gut feeling, but I feel like a lot of people at the time were probably thrown for this, we go to the future, 
Because, yes, I thought the whole movie was the future, by the way, mind you. Because we'd been waiting. We'd been uh, assuming that for years. Because at the end of Back to the Future 1, Doc's like, we got to go to the future uh, to be continued if Part 2 then would be all 2015. We're just there for a fraction. We spend most of our time dealing with the alternate 1985. And then in Act 3, well, I guess the end of Act 2, we go to alter. We go back to 55. Now... I think it's the alternate 85 that's thrown people through a loop, but this is the type of shit that happens in like superhero movies all the time. We're kind of always waiting on bated breath to see something different. Like, oh, what if they time travel back to Ant-Man 1 and Ant-Man punches the Falcon, and the, and, and, but the Falcon doesn't punch back. Oh, he's supposed to punch back. <laughs> it's a stupid fucking example. But, you know, but anywho, I like Back to the Future Part 2 quite a bit, more so than Part 3, definitely, but I, I think, of course, the first one is a classic. But now this gets thrown through the wrinkle. Uh, You know, it's definitely family-friendly fare, but also back to Franchiseville. And this is the last, you know, box office information we'll track. This hasn't been a box office show. But it it comes in and it makes about $28 million right out of the gate. And, uh, you know, Little Mermaid increases, actually. Uh, Steel Magnolias makes more with more theaters. All Dogs Have Go to Heaven makes more. It is Thanksgiving. Luke, who's talking, drops a little bit, but still makes seven point eight million fucking dollars in week seven. It's number four. Good lord! Uh, hey, the Bears number nine. Are you kidding me? The Bear made twenty three million dollars at the box office. Good lord! Batman rounding us out at number fifteen. No, number fourteen. Excuse me, with fifty thousand dollars still showing in one hundred eighty nine theaters. Wow, in its 23rd week of release. I love Box Office Mojo. It's a happening for sure. But that takes us all the way to the end of November. Uh, and I appreciate the little indulgence there, but I just found that five sequence of films so interesting in regards to their relationship to the box office. The next film on the list is Flying Solo. A December 1st release. Oh, famously. I don't know about famously, but I just saw this when I was on Box Office Mojo. This movie would not open at number one, but it would reach Box Office uh, box office King, if you will, number one movie uh, three weeks from its release date. I guess you could wonder why. Because it's National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Unfortunately... A cultural touchstone of films released in 19... I just... I don't like this movie. I'm so tired of this movie. I don't know. Like, it doesn't hold a fucking candle to National Lampoon's vacation. But unfortunately... Well, I don't know. Okay, this this sounds off. I didn't mean it like this. What I was going to say is, unfortunately, there's a reason to watch this film every year. That doesn't mean, unfortunately, Christmas happens each year. Uh, I'm just saying that... Unfortunately, because of Christmas, there's a built-in excuse to re-watch Christmas Vacation every year when we should re-evaluate that opportunity. We should see that as an opportunity to watch National Lampoon's Vacation every Christmas because Christmas Vacation is so mid and middling. I don't know. It's just uninteresting to me. Uh, Vacation is so bonkers and out there, but also... It tells, like, a more complete story. This just doesn't do anything for me. It's so predictable and basic as well. I, I, I'm i sorry. Like, I I didn't do this podcast for to have an opportunity to rip into this movie. And I'm not going to go apeshit and bonkers on it. But I just, I'm so, t- I'm tired of a Christmas story, too, if it makes you feel better. All right? And I, I think that movie is arguably better than a Christmas than Christmas Vacation. But I don't know. I just feel like Christmas Vacation is a, is a missed opportunity. I, it's not rated R, 
which is a big thing for me. Um, especially because the first one is such a hard R. I just, you know, I appreciate it a bit more. Uh, this one, it also, I don't know. I don't really like Randy Quaid. Uh, I don't know. It's fine if you like it. Now I'm trying to win back votes. If you like it, that's totally cool. Like, I get it. Like, there are some parts that are humorous. But, like, when people... I've seen people laugh their tits off to, like, the part where uh, Chevy Chase slides down the uh, on the sled that's, like, uh, super greased up. And he's just in front of the worst blue screen. And it's like, that's just the lowest common denominator hanging fruit of comedy. Uh, it just, I don't know, I feel like National Lampoon's Vacation, the original where they go to Wally World, at least, uh, I mean, it has bonkers, stupid parts too, but nothing quite that stupid. You know, there's logical leaps like, oh my god, they've kidnapped John Candy with a BB gun, but at that point, Clark's totally lost his shit, so you kind of buy into it. You know, with this, it's like stupid, uh, jokey, like, I don't know, comedy that couldn't feasibly have... I don't know, like, it's like one step too far and it's reaching for comedy. Just rain it down. Oh, and then Santa catches fire at the end of the movie? What is this? What is this? What kind of world are we living in? What type of a world does a Christmas vacation take place in? Some super fantastical world? Does Clark have some sort of superpowers? I don't understand this. Oh man, I did not expect to get off on the Christmas vacation tangent, but that that's where we are nonetheless. I, I don't know though. I, I guess I'm also a little sour on it because I feel like there's this uh, sociological consciousness that buys into uh, everybody just loves Christmas vacation. Like everyone's got a favorite part and it's like one of those, oh, we have to watch it. But ironically enough, like Home Alone's another, we have to watch it because it's a Christmas time movie, but I, I can get behind that. I, I feel like it's just... It's easier to digest. Of course, I'm more of a Home Alone 2 fan, ironically enough. But I, I don't know. I don't want to. I don't want to turn this into the National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation hating podcast. But it kind of got that way for a few minutes. Let's move forward with the rest of December so we can finish this bad boy up. Ironically enough, the next film has nothing to do with Christmas, and it features an actress I just briefly talked about. And the only reason it made the list is because I don't know. I feel like. It's kind of maybe her only good movie, if there even is such a thing. It's December 8th, and it's She-Devil, starring Roseanne Barr. Now, this movie is maybe lost to history. I don't really know. There may be a huge She-Devil contingent. I almost said She-Hulk. My God. There might be a huge She-Devil contingent out there that I'm just not aware of. But uh, Roseanne Barr is married to Ed Bagley Jr., who I just love when he randomly shows up and stuff. And fucking Meryl Streep. Slumming it in this comedy is a uh, is a vivacious uh, romance novel uh, writer that uh, steals Ed Bagley Jr. from Roseanne Barr. I don't know how hard that would be to do, especially when you're a 1989 Meryl Streep. But it's all about Roseanne seeking revenge and ruining the lives of Meryl Streep and Ed Bagley Jr. And you know what? It's just a decent enough comedy premise to work. Although, I must tell you, fans, it features... One of the all-time worst blue screen or green screen moments in the history of our sport. As Roseanne Barr blows up the home that she shares with Ed Begley Jr., she walks away, much like a tough guy 80s action hero star, she walks away from the explosion 
and stares blankly into the camera because she's too cool to look back at the explosion. But it's one of the worst special effects of all time. And they even put it in the trailer. They thought it was so nice and it ages so terribly. But at the same time, I think that's what makes it absolutely fucking awesome. This is a movie I haven't watched in quite some time. I have it saved on some streaming service as a reminder to like watch it before it expires every time I see it. <laughs> but yet I still have failed to return to it. But I wanted to give it a little mention here. If for nothing else, that fucking absolutely awful special effects shot. You should do yourself a favor and at least Google the trailer. Do yourself that much of a favor and then maybe watch it. But if nothing else, check out that awful awful shot now the next weekend all right there's there's interesting synergy here with two films and then one film stands out like a sore thumb ironically that's the one i'm probably going to talk about the most so december is known for a couple of things one capitalize as much as humanly capitalistically possible on the christmas holiday which dash sleep was christmas vacation has done it's also last call for oscar bait now, if you're not familiar with Oscar bait, all right, these are films that are clearly designed to get nominated for Oscars. Hopefully, best picture, best director, best acting, things like that. And so these two films that I'm about to discuss briefly are clearly doing just that because one of them ends up winning the Oscar for best picture in 1989. The movie that does not win best picture is a history teacher favorite, Glory, starring Matthew Broderick and Denzel Washington in a story of the Civil War, which is not something I'm going to make any jokes about, except for the fact that Matthew Broderick, as a fucking Civil War platoon leader, is strangely, I guess, more believable, maybe because his performance is better than he is as a nerdy scientist in Godzilla. I just... Fucking Matthew Broderick, man. Like, I don't understand how someone who's so... I was going to say so talented. Let me try see if I can quantify this. Like, Ferris Bueller's Day Off is an all-time iconic performance. Like, I believe that Matthew Broderick's just the coolest fucking guy on the planet as I'm watching the movie. Sure, he's kind of a dick to Cameron. But he's also, like, the most believable Zach Morris I've ever seen. Okay? How is it that Matthew Broderick could then be so lame in every other movie I've ever seen him in? I don't understand it. How could someone lose their cool so easily it boggles the mind but the reason i call it a history teacher special is because i feel like uh two different history t uh classes that i took in high school uh both had me watch this film and i get it i get the relevance here it's certainly uh you know these days i feel like they'd be like oh the civil war happened now let's move right along move right along i need to talk about that which is bonkers but uh this isn't the uh save your school podcast but at the same time uh you know, it's one of these things where the teacher would be like, all right, now we're going to watch Glory. It's rated R, but it's important that we watch it. And we're like, okay, let's watch it. So I got nothing bad to say about it, but I have never watched it outside of a history course in high school. The film that won the Oscar for Best Picture is Driving Miss Daisy. Uh, Miss Daisy? Uh, you know what, though, guys? Never seen it. Never felt compelled to. Because I feel like you can just sort of look at the box for this movie and uh, you get it. And, and I'm not I'm not trying to oversimplify these things or say that a film like Driving Miss Daisy isn't important because some people, obviously, even in this day and age, don't get it, okay? But I feel like I can look at it and I absolutely understand what the movie is, what it's all about. I 
And there we go. Uh, of course, Morgan Freeman fucking rules. And I believe it's my understanding that uh, he drives around Jessica Tandy from Cocoon the Return, amongst other things. But Cocoon the Return... Did anyone else come to Cocoon the Return before they saw Cocoon? Much like Eddie in the Cruisers 2, Eddie Lives, when Cocoon the Return came out, I was like, wait a minute, there's a Cocoon that's not the Return? What is this? I must I must know more about this. But I watched Cocoon the Return first before I watched Cocoon. Uh, just going to show that uh, if video stores still existed, people would watch anything, okay? Because you just go to the new releases and you grab six of them and you're like, okay, Mom, I'm ready to go. But uh, Driving Miss Daisy, you know, uh, I'm sure that she comes to respect Morgan Freeman. I think Dan Aykroyd plays Jessica Tandy's son, which I love the idea that Dan Aykroyd is probably walking around this movie doing basically a Foghorn Leghorn impression because it takes place in the South. Uh, Yes, I'm Dan Aykroyd here to sell you some Kentucky Fried Chicken, if you will. But uh, I've never seen Miss Daisy. Uh, just add it to the list of movies that I haven't seen from 1989, and I will watch it as soon as humanly possible. Now, those are your two Oscar bait films. Ironically enough, this next film, when you go to see it in theaters, kind of feels like Oscar bait because they take an angle to, to this film that I would not have expected because based on the trailers... This movie is something completely different, but it's The Wizard, starring Fred Savage, Jenny Lewis, who we spoke about in great detail when we talked about True Beverly Hills. Jenny, Jenny Lewis having the uh, the year of the uh, the decade here for her filmography, I suppose. But The Wizard, I thought, was just going to be a fucking movie about Super Mario Brothers 3. Well, no, it's a movie about families uh, finding ways to stick together through tragedy and, uh, you know, making sure that your little brother... Uh, gets across country safely and it just takes a sidetrack to sell some fucking Nintendos. Now the wizard stands out to me as this strange film because I'll never forget I went to see it in theaters on December 27th 1989 I believe. Uh, let me do some internet research as I'm talking about this. But why do I remember specifically the day that I saw it in theaters so well? Well I'm sure from listening to this podcast, you've learned that I'm sort of a freak. But I went to see this film the same day, uh, yeah, December 27, 1989, thanks to Google, that No Holds Barred, the Match the Movie pay-per-view took place because it was an all-time moment in my childhood. Santa Claus, or Santa Claus, depending on who you're worshiping, had this year brought me all the World Wrestling Federation LJN figures, the ring. I, it was the best Christmas of all time. I also got the uh, Ultimate Warrior Wrestling. No, that was the next year I got the Ultimate Warrior Wrestling, buddy. Almost telling tales out of school here. But my mom took me to see The Wizard in the afternoon, and then that evening was No Holds Barred, the match movie, because I got a note from Santa Claus in my stocking that said, Johnny C., why have a Merry Christmas when you can have a no-holds-barred Christmas? God love my parents. They paid so much attention to the shit that I walked around saying because I was an instant wrestling mark that they wrote the note from Santa Claus telling me that I could have a no-holds-barred Christmas. And that is just hopefully more evidence as to why my parents fucking rule to this very day. Uh, Shout out to them. Not that they'll ever listen to this. But, uh, you know, so it just, it was such a special thing for a youth to experience. And then I came home and watched The Holds Bard, the match, the movie. Uh, and another movie that I was very surprised by because both of these films, The Wizard and No Holds Bard, are sold to me on very baseline concepts. The Wizard is a movie about Nintendo. No Holds Bard is a movie with Hulk Hogan as a wrestler. But they, <laughs> both of these movies take such convoluted ways to get to what I'm here to see. But nonetheless, they do it. 
Um, rounding out December, a couple more Oscar bait films. December 20th, born on the 4th of July, Tom Cruise and Oliver Stone having all sorts of problems with Vietnam. Never seen it. Uh, the 22nd is always a Steven Spielberg joint about a dead pilot. Richard, Richard Dreyfus. It's me. It's Richard Dreyfus. Damn it. I told you I didn't want to wear the mask. That is Richard Dreyfus auditioning for C-3PO, one of my favorite Saturday Night Live sketches. I've never seen these films. So I don't really care, but they're both Oscar Beatty. Always is a Spielberg joint. It's famously one of Spielberg's like least respected films, but whatever. Everybody's got to have a bomb here and there. And rounding out the year, same day, the twenty second. Uh, uh, it's the fucking mega powers of eighties uh, action films. Kurt Russell and Sylvester Stallone, Tango and Cash, one of the best uh, action movie tag teams in the history of our sport. A movie, again, that I've seen a few times, but not so many times it was part of my like regular action film rotation. Spo- I was more of a Schwarzenegger guy. Schwarzenegger was always my jam. But, of course, Kurt Russell, I, I learned to respect more in my adulthood. Uh, and then Stallone uh, is playing against type here as he's the uptight one in the Tango and Cash combination. <laughs> and I'm going to shortchange it because I haven't seen it in like 10 years. Shortchanging Tango and Cash gotta be a joke there somewhere but ladies and gentlemen december is over the year is over 1989 is complete and in the books i i hope that we covered all the films that meant something to you in 1989 but if we didn't hit me up on twitter at the johnny c and let me know what i missed and let me know what meant so much to you and your youth but that is going to put a, is going to close the book on this two-part edition of Top Man. It's also going to close the book on Aquatober here in the Aqua Cave. It's been a blast. I hope everyone has enjoyed uh, all the season that we've uh, you know all the season that we've brought out here. Uh, hope, you know we we finished strong here with 1989, a year that fin- that uh, featured releases from A Nightmare on Elm Street, Halloween, and Friday the Thirteenth franchises, all wrapping it up back into our Aquatober horror theme. Oof. I don't know about you, but around this time, I get so tired of watching slasher films that I don't watch them until October 1st. He strikes, and we'll do that in 2023. But if you've enjoyed the Aqua Cave content this month, make sure you're subscribed, getting updated when new content drops, and sharing it with your friends. Uh, it's been a hell of an adventure. It's something I'd like to revisit with other years. If you have a year in particular that stands out to you, again, hit me up on Twitter, message me, and uh, we'll see what we can get going because... Always want to produce content that people want to hear. And if there's a year out there that's special to you and I get enough requests for the same one, obviously there's a desire to hear it and I will present it to all you Aqua fans. But I'm getting out of here. I got to go hand out some candy. I'm Johnny C and a winner is you. <laughs>